Hello and welcome to another episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter. And this week we have got two lovely interviews lined up in this episode. And both are going to be focusing on the absolute disaster that is the A-level and GCSE results in England uh, as of last week. Um, so we're going to be talking about what this proves, what this shows about the government in Ofqual, what this could mean for the future, what this means for students. Um so first off, I am delighted to be joined by... Hi, I'm Andrew. I am a Teach First ambassador, um, having taught for four years in the northeast of England. Um, and I'm also co-founder of Head Start Northeast, um, an organisation which looks to improve the chances of young people um, from disadvantaged backgrounds. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on, Andrew. Um, so uh, for listeners benefit, we're recording this at 4.30pm uh, on the Monday. Um, 17th of August. So uh, the government and Ofqual have just U-turned on examinations and A-level exams and GCSE exams will now be based on teacher assessments as opposed to the algorithm which has caused so much distress over the past five days. Um, By the time this interview goes out, more things may have changed. Uh, You may know more than us um, listening to it. Um, So I figured that we could just start talking about what this so far reveals about Ofqual, um, was a strange pronunciation of it, Ofqual, um, and what they consider to be important and whether their judgments were um, misguided or not um, in the run-up to this and what this also reveals about the Conservative government and what they prioritise and how they behave in times of crisis. So what what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think... To start off with, this is a um, just one of many in a long list of government failures towards children and young pe- young people over um, lockdown and over um, the pandemic. I mean, this is perhaps the issue which has gained the most publicity and the most media attention. Uh, but if we think back to um, the battle over whether free school meals would continue, mm. Um, mm. the vouchers over the summer holidays, and it took Marcus Rashford stepping in to, uh, to solve that one. Uh, but we've also had um, thousands of vulnerable children who've not been coming to school when mm. um, they should have been, when school was a vital um, safeguarding um, uh, aspect for them. And uh, the, the government didn't manage to make sure those students turned up to school. Um, and we've also had real failures in terms of access to online learning and um, huge inequalities in terms of who's had a laptop, who hasn't, um, mm. who's been able to access learning and who hasn't um so i think it's important to interpret it within that context Mm. um and so to come back to your question i think it uh it reveals the extent to which um the government is uh out of touch with the needs um of young people and children particularly um those in areas of high deprivation Mm. um i in terms of what about ofqual i think i i it's I don't want to um, tarnish them too much. I imagine that they have been severely constrained uh, by the parameters in terms of creating the algorithm. Um, Mm. It was a tool designed to solve a problem which the government had created. Mm. So is part of it, do you think, a kind of like lack of imagination for how to deal with these issues? Like like with schools, for example. So I know know, um, you've been very pro um keeping schools open trying to get as many children in school as possible throughout this um coming from like a left a left perspective on this um and you know i th- there had been plenty of suggestions throughout about um renting out um large public spaces which were not being used um like libraries for example um to teach kids in and also ensure social distancing but those things of course were not happening and the net result is months and months of school and education lost so it is 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 some of it a lack of imagination or is it just these are just really difficult problems and they just happen to choose the wrong solution this time with exams i think i think it's both. i think they they are difficult problems in that we probably would i think there's no way we couldn't have um cancelled it not cancelled exams mm. um i think uh they had to be cancelled and mm. i think it was right to try and give students um, grades and qualifications this year rather mm. than postponing them. Mm. Um, so I think those two decisions were correct. I think where the lack of imagination comes in um, is that the way I see it is that the government has always seen this as a um, a collective problem uh, rather than seeing it as um, the life chances of 
the individuals affected. Mm. So I think that the parameters which the government have set off were that uh, we don't want grade inflation to go above around 2%. Mm. Um, and whatever else you do to ensure that, that's absolutely fine. Mm. And so they were always viewing these results in terms of the national picture. Mm. Um, how are we going to keep grade inflation down rather than viewing them in terms of uh, what does this mean for the individuals affected? Um, and I think that's where the lack of imagination has come. Mm. So um, it, thank you for mentioning grade inflation, because that also links to something else that I wanted to talk about. Um, so now that the government is you turn to bring in teacher assessments for exams there is going to be a lot of great inflation um and as you say that that seemed to be a guiding principle and i think a lot of um supporters of the algorithm were saying like yes but it's important to keep grade inflation down um is, is it important to keep grade inflation down um i know this this fits into a general pattern of behavior with the government in uh respect to education and universities so they're always very publicly concerned about the number of so universities are like the number of firsts given out, for example. Um, is grade inflation actually something to be worried about or is it just the product of generations getting smarter and better at doing exams, basically? And, and I guess that links in with um, your work as well in, in the Northeast in, 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 trying, in trying to create grade inflation effectively by trying to increase attainment and, um, you know, raise educational standards with the kids that you work with. Yeah, I think it's um, the broad picture is one where, yes, schools are getting better, teachers are getting better. Um, and so in the broad sense, I mm. think concerns around grade inflation are overstated. I think mm. with regards to this year, I think the concern about grade inflation is valid. Mm. Um, so, for example, at A-level, uh, the A and A star grades um, would have increased by 11% um, compared to the 2% that um, they would have done if the model was used. Mm. Um, and that does create problems. It creates problems for uh, universities who have then suddenly got more people taking up offers than they can place. It creates massive problems uh, for next year's cohorts um, who, because so many universities will have to defer places to next year, uh, next year's cohort will be competing against um, this year's cohort who have mm. had their top grades somewhat more easily. Mm. Um, but I think you have to make an assessment based on what the alternative is. And the alternative that the algorithm came up with uh, was a system which systematically downgraded um, students uh, in schools with lower prior performance, um, or essentially uh, downgrading students um, who lived in areas of high deprivation, because that's where the most um, low performing schools are. So I think if you compare the, the problems with grade inflation, which are valid, um, to the solution to that, which is um, systematically downgrading disadvantaged students, um, I think you then you then just have to accept that grade inflation is something we'll have to work with. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you were talking about this creating problems for next year's cohort as well. And something else that I was just thinking about, it, it's not just going to be those who now can't go this year for capacity reasons or because universities just, um, you know, who, who have like missed out on their first choice, for example. Um, it's not just going to be that group plus the um, the actual applicants for next year, so those who will do their A-levels next year. It's also going to be all the people who had already sort of decided to defer next year anyway from this year because they didn't want to do a year of online learning, perhaps. So, I mean, I don't know, can you... <laughs> it, it just seems like it's going to be really difficult next year. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if... I don't know, can you can you see any way around it? Or I can't. I think there will have to be support to universities uh, in terms of increasing capacity. Mm. Um, so, or, or not just universities, but sort of um, higher education and further education institutions in general. Mm. Uh, one of those will be releasing caps on university places. Mm. Uh, but I think it will also mean um, increased funding um, to those institutions to make sure they can build up that capacity. Um, but I think, yeah, we, we need to be clear about about just how, how awful the um, algorithm awarded grades were. Um, I mean, I think essentially what we ended up with was a system which discounted individual merit. It basically said no matter what work you've done over the last 13 years of education, uh, we're going to give you this grade uh, because you went to this school. Mm. Um, and that was, I think it was uh, over 80% of cases at A-level and 97% of cases projected at GCSE where that would have been the case rather than yeah. using the teacher grades. So I think if you think about individual merit in that sense, compared to the individual merit, which is maybe 
lost through slightly inflated grades, I think you've got to got to say that the situation we're in now is preferable. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and and talking there about individual merit, the, that that's the thing that makes this so sort of bizarre from the government the government's point of view because this is the conservative party individual merit is supposed to be their thing i mean we can sort of debate whether it is actually their thing and whether this is just sort of saying the quiet part out loud as they have been doing for a while but on the face of it if you were to describe this this doesn't seem like you know of of as you said of effectively saying individual merit doesn't matter how much work you've put in doesn't matter you're purely constrained by what previous years have gotten. That doesn't sound like a conservative policy at all, um, as demonstrated by the number of backbench Tory MPs who came out this morning saying, this is terrible, we should do a U-turn. Yes, yeah. Well, I think it, it does. I think you're right. I think it also demonstrates um, the extent to which many conservative MPs are, are out of touch with the country in which or in which they govern. Um, mm. we, we know, for example, that um, children in the most deprived areas are four times more likely to go to an offset judged inadequate or required improvement school um, than children in, in richer areas. And I think part of the, the magical thinking which came up with this algorithm was uh, a lack of awareness just about how um, how great these educational divides are um, by area and, and by location. Mm. And um, that, that leads nicely into sort of the work that you do with... Um co-founding Head Start Northeast and your work as a teacher um, in the Northeast. So, so do you just want to talk a little bit about that, about what what what, what it is, the work that you do and um, sort of what what life is like um, in that sort of world? Mm. Yeah, so, well, specifically on, on Head Start Northeast. Mm. Um, so it was formed uh, just after I finished my um, NQT year, so my uh, second year of teacher training. Um, and it came out of realization among uh, uh, my colleagues and me about mm. the fact that every time uh, we returned from a long holiday, particularly the summer holidays, um, and it, this is no exaggeration to say some of our students were, were visibly malnourished, mm. um, not able to uh, give their full attention to their studies. Um, and the research confirms that with 3 million children at risk of holiday hunger each year in the UK, that, that is because of the lack of free school meals that uh, are generally provided during term time. Mm. Um, added on to that is the problem of what we call summer learning loss. Um, so that's the idea that uh, children from um, families which have lower uh, prior education attainment um, suffer much more greatly um, from learning loss over the extended summer holidays um, than their more advantaged peers. Mm. Um, so we created uh, the Head Start Northeast Summer School Program as an answer to both of those problems. Uh, we would uh, provide high quality intensive academic tuition um, to students while also providing um, lunch and breakfast and mm. therefore hopefully protecting against holiday hunger as well. Um, since then, we've, we've worked with almost 100 students uh, um, across the Northeast in, in several different schools. Um, we unfortunately weren't able to run a summer school this year uh, because of the pandemic, mm. uh, but have been able to move some of that online um, and have started an online tutoring program. Mm. Yeah, that sounds great, and um, I guess I guess that's what was motivating your thinking for wanting to sort of reopen as many schools as possible as soon as possible throughout the pandemic, even when you know that was looking difficult, and you know, of course, there were many on the left who um, weren't so happy about that, and are still not so happy about that. But um, but yeah, I, I guess do you, do you, do you see any signs of optimism in that regard at the moment? Or are you still? quite worried about attainment with disadvantage areas i am quite worried i'm very worried but um yes it's, it's it's terrifying um so so the the figure um with a standard summer uh sort of six week holiday is that mm. um two-thirds of the attainment gap between advantage and disadvantage students happens as a result of that summer learning loss mm. we've extended that summer effectively from six weeks to six months between yep. march and september um so it is yeah, horrifying to think of the learning loss that has taken place. Add on to that the complications of the fact that uh, many students uh, were never were never given laptops, never had internet access over the whole period of lockdown, mm. um, and you really have a very difficult situation. I think the the only thing I am optimistic about is that um, it has been great seeing the Labour Party come around to a much a much clearer position on this um, with with Keir Starmer quite. Uh, 
openly saying that yes schools schools do need to return and um that is sort of an, a part of returning back to normal that the country needs to be prioritizing i think mm. i was particularly dismayed uh, back in um june or, or july whenever it was when pubs reopened but for most students schools remained closed and to yeah. me that just seems completely the wrong set of priorities mm. well it, it's you said they're the wrong set of priorities and, and that we sort of back to that back to that theme again the government continually seemed to be providing the wrong and following the wrong set of priorities in multiple sets of decisions not just um not just with education with um with exams um i guess this is a a, a more political question and but it, it it is it is odd that a government which was formed with the on the explicit basis that they were in touch with the popular mood and in touch with what people wanted to see has multiple times now um so first with the dominant coming scandal with the free school meals scandal um and marcus rashford and now with this and inevitably other incidents as well that are slipping from my mind right now um have demonstrated that they are on the back foot they keep having to u-turn um is that do you think that can change i think it yeah it, it's very difficult to to see how it can so long as the country remains as, as unequal and as divided as it is i think mm -hmm. the so just to give one one small example from my own personal experience yeah I, I grew up in, in in winchester which is a very affluent sort of middle class generally um mm. city uh, went to school in a standard state comprehensive um and we did food tech classes and i enjoyed them and that was fine then as a teacher uh, moved to gateshead taught at a secondary school there and was having a conversation with the the food tech teacher and i asked her about what sort of practicals they would do uh, and she said well actually we we barely do any because uh, we just know that so many of the so many of the students would struggle to get the money together to buy ingredients and it would cause a real headache for parents and really embarrassing for those students who can't bring them in mm. and it had never even crossed my mind that that would that would be a barrier and obviously that's that's my privilege and my and my background um multiply that a hundred times and magnify it to a conservative mp who's making decisions on education policy uh, will it have crossed their mind or will they be aware of how many students across the country don't have laptops or don't have a reliable internet connection when they're deciding whether to open schools or whether to keep them closed? I, that's that's where, um, yeah, it's, it's very easy to be quite pessimistic. Mm. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, for for full, for full context for listeners, um, we didn't go to the same state school, but we went to the same sixth form. Um, and yeah, Win Winchester is definitely in affluent area there are definitely pockets of deprivation and yeah um uh areas where living standards are you know very challenging but yes on, on, on the whole most certainly a very affluent area um and with the example you mentioned of food tech i'm i'm now thinking back to my own food tech lessons in school um at the, at the different state school um and yeah i mean i can't remember whether we had to i suppose we did probably have to buy our own ingredients i can't really remember i'm this is stretching back to like 10 to almost 10 years now um but um yeah i that it's it's one of those it's one of those little things which just sort of add up to create those social inequalities in schools don't they it's it's similar to like school uniforms for example and the um non-school uniform days for instance at least um with with regards to how uh non-school uniform days can somehow very visibly uh, identify which um, families can afford to buy lots of clothes and which families can't. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just very, I'm just very worried about what this is going to do long term. What this is going to accelerate things which were very slowly getting better and which have now been halted so dramatically by the pandemic, like attainment standards, um, mm. just public confidence in the education system. I mean, with regard to, to your work in, in the Northeast um, with disadvantaged um, students, um, it, was there a sense of confidence in the education system um, at that point? Was it a kind of like, oh, the system doesn't work for us mentality? Um, was it somewhere in between? I, I don't think that's that's a crucial issue. I think people mm. do um, trust schools and trust teachers um, to get the best outcomes um, for their students. And I think I think it would be rare, at least I never encountered it greatly, to come across sort of the idea that 
the system is stacked against us. Mm, mm. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think you're right. One, one of the things that we will have to worry about going forward, um, given that the recent fiasco is, um, is there now going to be a great sense of, well, actually the system is stacked against us. Mm. I, mean, I think that the one area um, where I did have some direct contact with it was um, in one of the schools I worked in, um, I worked as the Oxbridge advisor yeah. for the sixth form students. And um, then there was a lot of work to do in terms of uh, convincing students that um, actually Oxbridge was a place where state school students could go, but also a place where students from the Northeast could go. Um, it, I always told them it wasn't just somewhere where people were as posh as, as my accent was. Uh, actually, <laughs> all sorts of people went there and yeah, um, they, only, they only cared about whether you were bright or not. Um, and in my experience, that, that was the case, having been at Cambridge, but uh, nonetheless took some convincing, understandably for some of these students for whom Oxbridge was a very alien world. Um, and one of the things which I had worried about uh, with sort of um, Oxbridge having to turn turn down a large number of students from schools in deprived areas who had been awarded by this algorithm lower grades um, was that all of that hard work, all of that good work done by very many um, sincere and dedicated access workers across Oxbridge would be undone just by this, um, this debacle. So um, hopefully this... Uh, allowing teacher grades to to hold will hopefully go some way to remedying that. Mm. And on, on the note of um, Oxbridge and Cambridge, um, they Cambridge put out a statement last night, so Sunday night, saying that, um, I think I'm getting this right, so that um, if, if you can successfully appeal um, your grade and, and meet your offer, then uh, you will be able to come, if not this year, then next year. Um, and sort of providing a safety net for um, disadvantaged students, and several colleges are sort of trying to step up to the plate and um, and admit admit students, sort of regardless of that sense of like honour the offer thing that's been going around. W- were you happy with the statement and policy? Um, or yes, I think uh, I haven't seen details of it, but I, I read a similar statement from uh, King's College Cambridge and, mm. and and was broadly happy with it. I mean, they, they are constrained by just how many. They, they can't offer everyone a place and it seems that they mm. have prioritized those um from state schools and those from who, who meet various disadvantaged criteria which is which is good which is what we'd want to see so that mm. that is encouraging i mean i think um that there is a huge issue of inequality with terms to access to elite universities yeah. um, and i don't want to downplay that uh but we we have to also think about the uh, inequality that's happening much much earlier down the line um 60 uh, percent of students um, who receive free school meals don't have a pass in GCSE, English mm. and maths. Um, and so, you know, whatever happens at the Oxbr- Oxbridge's end, uh, those students don't have a chance regardless. Mm. Um, so I think it often is the case that uh, universities are actually doing a very good job um, of widening access mm. as much as they can within the uh, unequal outcomes that happen at A-level and happen at GCSE. Mm. Yeah, and I, I guess this is just another example of universities being given a bad hand by the government of having to act within the parameters that had been set by the algorithm and by the advice given out, um, the appeals advice, that is, um, both of which have now been pulled under the rug. Um, I mean, you know, I I, 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 have, I have a great deal of sympathy with the university admissions departments and what must be incredibly difficult. It must now be even more incredibly difficult with tens of thousands um of students i mean i was watching bbc news for the announcement and the figure was potentially up to one hundred twenty-five thousand students in the system who are still sort of in play for a place either this year or next year um i mean that that's just i mean the fact that it's got to this point i just don't see how ofqual and the government didn't see this coming i mean it happened this is exactly what happened in scotland and they decided to go ahead with it anyway and now the exact same outcome has occurred as in Scotland. It's sort of maddening, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, there is a lot of incompetence. And, I, you know, I think there's still a lot they could have done to, to avoid the situation. I mean, it mm. was a very difficult problem to try and solve, but um, I've seen several teachers suggest uh, a sort of pre-appeal system. So if schools had received the results a week before they were announced, they could mm. have appealed the worst cases and the most obviously wrong ones and then got back to them uh, or if universities could see um, not only the um the algorithm ordered grade but also the uh, teacher given grade and mm. the teachers ranking within the class 
um, then they would have had a lot more information to make the decision about whether they reject an offer or um, or accept it. Um, so yeah, I, th I think how n neither of those ideas were implemented in, bet in, in between the results in Scotland coming out um, and the results in England coming out, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they were doing for the five months between March and now, or, or, or even the week between Scotland um, and now. I, yeah, it's uh, bizarre. Yeah, it is. I mean, the thing that the thing that my mind keeps coming back to, I, I said just before we started recording that this reminded me a lot of the Dominic Cummings scandal in a situation where the government clearly um, screws up effectively. Every single sector of people um, from across the political spectrum, including from their own party, is publicly saying this was a screw up and something needs to be changed. He needs to resign or the algorithm needs to change. But in this instance, uh, it just the government did listen um, as opposed to them when they didn't listen and they stuck their, stuck their feet in. And I, I was reading Gavin Williamson's interview in the Times on Saturday where he was saying there will be no U-turns. This is the system it's saying. Obviously, two days later, that has fallen apart. Um, but it, a sort of like pride almost seems to... Maybe not. Maybe pride is the wrong word. A sort of definitely a kind of intransigence, but a sort of distaste for the immediacy of public opinion. Um, and I, I know I was sort of talking about this earlier, but it does just seem a very unsustainable governing style to do things with the bet that maybe in the long run people will forget and have to consistently weather. I mean, we're still within like, it hasn't even been a year since they were elected, right? And this is the third major scandal which has massively impacted perceptions of the government. Um, this just does not seem a sustainable governing style until 2024 for the next four years. Um, and I don't know what's going to change, but I guess, as you said, it's got to be, it's got to be just improving competence at the top level. Yeah, and, and I worry um, that to some extent it will be self-reinforcing. The more they are seen as incompetent and prone to U-turns, um, would that mean the more they're more likely to dig their heels in and not back down the next time something like this comes out? Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, just as a, as a sort of final question, um, one thing which I've been very worried about since Thursday and, and throughout the pandemic with regards to... Um, education standards is about the long-term knock-on effects of what this is going to be like i really I've, i'm worried that in like 10 years i don't want to be doing this but i worry that i'm going to be reading some like profile in a magazine about the covid generation who's uh who are maybe quite young now but whose gcses and a levels were still impacted by like almost a year of complete loss of learning and who never managed to catch up and that this is going to be a generation that were always failed. And I don't want that to be the case, but I really worry that it is going to be the case and that we're going to be pinpointing 2020 as, oh yeah, this was a year when we did just fail hundreds of thousands of students. Um, and I think as well about how educational decisions taken many years ago are now coming back to bite. I mean, um, the decision to scrap the AS level, for example, um, uh, I mean, the, the journalist Chris Cook just tweeted like, or in hindsight, that was looking like a real masterstroke, wasn't it? Um, if, of course, if they hadn't scrapped the AS level, there would have been an additional layer of qualification to go on. Maybe they could have been used in place of A-levels. We don't know. Um, but that was many years ago that, that decision was made and, and you're still feeling the effects. And going back even further, I mean, our generation, um, so obviously um, you're a couple of years older than me, but our education was directly sort of impacted by reforms put in place under like Tony Blair's government, for example, and increase in funding. Like, these things have really long tail effects. Um, and it's hard to see them at the time. I think this is most acute in education, um, just because it encompasses, you know, almost 20 years of individuals' lives. Um, but they, they can have these really long tail effects. And, and I was just wondering if there's anything at the moment which you're worried about um, in the long, long term, um, potentially, I don't want to say optimistic, but things you think might be different. I think it's possible university culture might be different if there's a greater number of people who've coming from having taken now gap years, for example. But yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to recognise that the long term impacts on on this um, cohort who have just had their A level GCSE results 
in, in some ways, they're the ones who are, who are least affected by it mm. because they've actually had the least disruption to their learning. Mm. Um, I mean, when we think about when lockdown happens, it happened uh, in, in March. By that point, most GCSE and A-level teachers would have taught all of the content they were going to teach. Mm. They were just focusing on revising for mm. the exams. So in many ways, you know, they've, they've not, so long as they've got the grades which, that, which reflects their ability, they've not actually missed out on any, anything academically. Mm. Um, if you think about, uh, say, the, the group who are going to take exams next year, that's not the case. They've missed out on six months of learning. Yeah. Um, or, or even more so, the, um, the groups that weren't brought back to school um, when lockdown was eased. Um, but it's not also academic, it's also uh, things like social development. Mm. Um, so what does it mean uh, for the, one of the key points in education is the transition between primary and secondary school, mm. uh, between year six and year seven. And that is generally uh, supported by taste days in school, by transition programs, by uh, summer schools, all of which have been cancelled as a result of the pandemic. Uh, none of which, um, as far as I'm aware, the government have tried to uh, bring back in mm. um, and the long-term inf- uh, impacts of that sort of lack of um, uh, easy transition to a very different secondary school environment could be huge in terms of people who struggle socially or behaviorally um, in secondary school as a result and what really does worry me um, and I've been playing this counterfactual in my head what what would have happened if the GCSE results had come out before the A-level results mm. um, because I think with A-level results, we have um, a group of very admirable and, and very uh, vocal um, young people who are able to get on Twitter, who are able to petition their MPs, are able to uh, mobilize university students who maybe are their peers just one or two years ahead of them mm. uh, into making this big uh, fuss, which I think has eventually forced the U-turn. GCSE students, on the other hand, probably would not, if just going off my own teaching experience, would not have been so, so forward and confident and bold in achieving that. Now think about the, the year six students who have had their secondary school transition taken away from them, um, and they are voiceless and powerless in, in comparison with their ability to affect that change. Mm. Um, and I think that's, that's what concerns me the most when I think about the long term is who is the person who's going, what people are going to be championing um, these children when there aren't sort of when they aren't able to do so themselves and so long as we have this government I'm not sure that there's that they have that champion that's a good point and that's a very interesting counterfactual to be thinking about I hadn't thought about it like that um, I guess maybe one slight note of optimism I was just thinking about a tweet I saw earlier from um, uh, my friend Anna Oppenheim who'd been on the podcast a couple of weeks ago talking about Poland's election um, saying that for many young people their first experience of political rebellion is victory now having done this mm. so perhaps that is one 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 place to find optimism in that maybe that will have a long-term effect but who knows yeah and and maybe i mean the you know the um 1997 labor government was one on a promise of education 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 hopefully uh the last few days have been a reminder that education is a a winning policy platform it's something that we can all agree upon hello and welcome back after that brief musical interlude for our second interview in this episode where i'm delighted to be joined by fabia kroll head of partnerships at future frontiers an education charity working with 13 to 18 year olds across uk secondary schools Fabia, thank you so much for coming on. Um, for, sure. for full clarification, um, listeners, I was a Future Frontiers volunteer, um, which is why this interview is happening. Um, and yeah, um, it works. It's a fantastic charity that works with disadvantaged um, young people. So um, Fabia, do you just want to explain a little bit about what what it is that Future Frontiers does um, for, for listeners who might not, might not have heard of it? Yes, absolutely. So... Future Frontiers is an education charity that works with young people from Mm. disadvantaged backgrounds across UK secondary schools. Um, Mm. We exist because, as lots of your listeners will know, I'm sure there is a long-standing link in the UK between um, how much a child's parents earn and the Mm. success that they can expect to have at school and the opportunities Mm -hmm. that will be 
available to them beyond school in the world of work. So we exist to ensure children from low income families receive the support and the guidance they need to fulfill their potential at school, but also when leaving school and moving on to education, training or employment uh, age 16 and 18. And we do that uh, firstly through an intensive programme of face to face career coaching, which is delivered yep. by business professionals. And secondly, by giving students lots of opportunities to connect with professionals in industries that they're really interested in. Mm. Absolutely. So it's um, <clears throat> it, it, it's definitely something that's focused on attainment at school, but it's also about getting people, get it, getting students to think about their lives after school, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, attainment is incredibly important and, and the biggest mm. indicator of, of what opportunities a young person will have um, available to them when they leave school. But there's mm. also a real lack in provision in the career space for young people, particularly from mm. disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, mm. So when, uh, when we were founded about seven years ago now by mm. a, a group of teachers who had frontline experience teaching in schools in South London. Mm. Um, it coincided with a real stripping back of careers advice and guidance for young people in schools. Mm. Um, and, and the burden was essentially uh, put on schools to, to provide career support, which they weren't mm. um, funded or, or equipped to be able to deliver in a really personalized way for every, for every young mm. person. Um, and also a, a reduction in, in careers advisors placed in schools. Mm. Um, and, and what that meant was that, you know, huge decisions about young people's futures were, were, were having to be made by them with, with very little personalised support on offer to help them think through really carefully what, what that meant for them, what they wanted to do, and, and also understand how they could get there. Um, mm. And that's particularly, been particularly damaging for some children from low-income families where then they're less likely to have access to that kind of support and that kind of uh, questioning from their own networks, whether it's family, friends, et cetera. Mm, Um, mm. So we really um, equip them with the motivation um, and and help them understand why their education is so important and help them understand why education and increased attainment at school will lead to the opportunities that they want to um, reach and, and the careers that they aspire to. But we also equip them with the the, the knowledge and the uh, information that they need to make well informed, sensible decisions about their next steps. Mm. Yeah. Um. And where, where, so yeah, when I, when I was doing when I was volunteering with Future Frontiers last year, so working directly with um with pupils um in in a in a school with um plenty of disadvantaged students. Mm. Um, I think this this segues nicely into the exams debacle um so for context we're recording this on the morning of um thursday the 20th so gcse results have just come out and the u-turn was several days ago so teacher assessments are back on um but um but yeah when i when i was volunteering the overwhelming sense that i got when working with the pupils that i was working with was as you were outlining that it's about sort of trying to create effectively like a sort of cognitive shift as well mm-hmm. so it's not just about like trying to improve material access to things which we know is so important but it's also about convincing people from low-income families really disadvantaged backgrounds um that actually this could be for you that you could do this as well and coming from a very disadvantaged background myself i know i remembered how sort of transformative that sort of switch is when you start thinking oh my god actually i could do this thing that you just never even considered before right um and i i completely agree with you that it's about um you know providing the requisite information the requisite support and the thing that well one of the many things that i was really worried about after seeing the initial a-level results last week decided by the algorithm was that this this was going to tell a generation of young people um who have already had the most difficult lives already um you know growing up with like very little money and no support networks as you were saying not being able to access careers advice from friends or family who were sort of 
already know people, that kind of thing. What I was really worried about was that this would just be such a massive confidence knock to these people. Um, and then they'd think like, oh, well, clearly I need to know to stay in my lane. Like, oh, well, how silly of me to ever think that I could go on and do you know, become a doctor or a lawyer or go to some Russell Group University or whatever, whatever it is that they wanted to do. So I was just wondering in your experience working with Future Frontiers, how much like weight, I suppose, do exam results carry when it comes to sort of working with um, the young people that Future Frontiers works with and sort of in in the in the act of convincing, convincing them to sort of try and broaden their horizons and think about what they'd really love to do that kind of thing yeah it's a really good point and I think you know success breeds confidence right Mm, and I think that um one of the reasons why children from from low-income families perform less well at school is that quite often throughout their education um, mm. from, from a very, very young age, they've had negative experiences of school. And that's yeah. the reasons leading into that are, are are huge. But from a very young age, often they, they haven't necessarily experienced success at school. Mm. And I think one of the most important things um, when trying to build up a young person's confidence and, and sense of self-belief that they really can um, strive for really ambitious um, careers or, or university courses or um, A-level courses or whatever it might be is, is is making sure that they achieve lots of little successes along the way. And absolutely, mm. and, and this is you know more from my experience as a teacher, I think, really than than my experience at Future Frontiers. But the impact of doing badly in something mm. can be incredibly damaging for a young person. Yeah. Um, and so to receive results that that suggest that you know they're not good enough or um they uh, are part of a system that that doesn't value the efforts that they've made absolutely is incredibly damaging and, and which is why mm. i mean it's not to be honest that the u-turn isn't going to solve that completely i think there are definitely mm. issues that the awarding of uh, center assess grades are going to cause in that regard as well it, it's absolutely mm. something that that we welcome and, and the fairest way of doing it but i think lots of teachers that i know are now um concerned about the impact of them receiving a grade from a teacher that says well actually this is what i think you are capable of on a good day and i think that mm. that's going to bring its own problems with it as well yeah so what what kind of problems do you do you foresee for that so i think when you sit an exam you obviously mm. have the opportunity to prove yourself and yep. you you might know that you've had a bad day or things didn't mm. go well for you but at the end of the day, in some way, that that is an indication to you of um, of, of how you performed. And I think not having mm. the opportunity for the young people to prove themselves in that exam and instead mm. um, having to take what somebody else thinks of their ability um, mm. could be really damaging. And, and we know there is evidence that um, young people from disadvantaged backgrounds and from certain ethnic groups as well are much more likely to outperform their predicted yeah. grades. Yeah. 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 We, um, this listeners, this, if you're very regular listeners, you may well remember last August, we did an episode on predicted grades talking about specifically that, about how, um, predicted grades are not, um, a good way of sort of the, the university office shouldn't be based on predicted grades. For example, that you should have university office after you've got your actual results. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with you with your assessment of exams. And I think the thing that is frustrating, that you just touched on there that I keep going back to it's still there with teacher assessments but was aggravated with the algorithm was that these were results well these weren't even they're not even results they yeah. were because <laughs> the exams never happened yeah and I think I think once you so th- that that is just the most fundamental thing wrong with the uh the idea of having algorithm an algorithm assigning grades they're trying to assign grades to ex- to exams that didn't ever happen. They don't exist. You you so it, it by default it's pretty much impossible to actually do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with teacher assessment grades, even though I agree with you, it is better. As you said, that is still just one person's opinion. Um, and I'm sure you know um, people listening to this will have had their own experience with this sort of thing of having like a teacher, for example, who maybe for whatever reason 
didn't think you could do that well um or in some cases just straight up didn't like the student um and would have predicted them you know low grades which they actually could have excelled beyond um in an exam so um on on exams do you think that do you think that more of an emphasis should have been placed on like I don't want to call them resets because they're not resets because they don't want resetting anything, but actually taking the exams in October. Um, I will just actually, just to add to your point there about predicted mm. grades, I think it is important mm. to to acknowledge the fact that they are called, they're centre assessed grades and not, they're not just teacher predictions. Yes, and I yes, think that, yes. you know, to, um, you know, we're fully in support of teachers and, and a huge amount mm. has gone in by teachers to kind of mitigate against any, biases against individual students and, and schools have mm, had to submit mm. a huge amount of evidence on those but yes, yeah absolutely yeah. you know it's still of course the fact that there is evidence to suggest that um central assessed grades or um school predicted grades are um uh, that disadvantaged students will, will be more likely to outperform those mm. um on the research i think that has massive implications for disadvantaged students as well mm. when you think of the um, you know, all students have been out of school since March. Um, mm. And to then, if you take a group of students and put them back into the system from September to October, even if it's from this point, you know, from July to um, to October, we know that in that situation, it's going to be the students with more resources, with more switched on parents, mm. with mm. Um, smaller class sizes, so teachers have less um, students to support. That are going to thrive in in a reset situation as well um so i don't think that would have necessarily been the answer i think the center assessed grade probably in my opinion is the best that could have been done given mm. the situation um mm. but but of, i think it is a good thing that the you know there is the option to reset but i think if i was mm. a young person i would be um fairly unexcited by that opportunity mm. to prove myself because I just don't think it's a genuine reflection of what somebody would have been capable of if they'd had the full teaching and the revision and the momentum leading up to exams in in May or June when they were meant to be sat. Yeah, exactly. I'd be terrified. Um, yeah. <laughs> after, you know, like, yeah, you mentioned momentum there and that is... There, there is definitely a sense of momentum when you're in, uh, when you're going up to GCSEs, the sense of like, right, this is what everything has been building towards. Yeah. These are the exams that like I got told about five years ago and we're finally here. Like, yeah. and for, for you know, hundreds of thousands of students, it was just a cut, note, momentum lost. Yeah. Um, this isn't happening. I mean, I can't even, I can't even imagine how weird it must have been and yeah i completely agree that it's really difficult and to try and mitigate missing six months of school yeah um i mean in the previous interview with um andrew we were talking about um sort of like average like learning loss from disadvantaged students for like six mm -hmm. weeks over the summer holidays and if you of course multiply that across six months that's yeah. a really that's really concerning yeah um but i i, I agree with you that there were basically no good options yeah. in this situation. It's like everything, everything is a trade-off. Um, mm -hmm. Whatever you choose, you're going to be disappointing a lot of people um, and making people angry. Um, and I, it sounds like doing the exams, which were not safe, there wasn't, there, were, there just wasn't a, a workable solution that could have pleased everyone. So if we take... Yeah, so if we take the central assessment grades as the best option and that this year is as it was and it's just going to stay that way, um, going forward, surely this means even more support to those disadvantaged students and even more, like the work of charities like Future Frontiers is going to be even more important, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what we have decided to focus on next year is support mm. for those students approaching their final years at school, so students in year 12 and year 13. And and the the uh, events of the last couple of days, I think, have, have shown even more and confirmed even more that that's a really, really important group to be focusing our support on. And, mm. and for, um, for schools and, and the government and other organisations to be thinking about what can be put in place to support that group of young people. 
we knew that as a result of the pandemic that the job market is going to become much more competitive that young workers in particular are going to be disproportionately affected and um, it's been described mm. as a, a perfect storm um, it is approaching young people yep. uh, over the over the coming months and, and the coming year but what the um the cancellation of exams and, and the allocation of centrist s grades will mean is that the university market will now too become more competitive and um, mm. so it's even more important that children from disadvantaged backgrounds who we know are um, significantly underrepresented in university courses for example have got mm. the support to be able to build strong applications and make good decisions and have the best possible chance of securing uh, securing those places that will that will be more competitive mm. um yeah 100 um and again i'm 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 very worried about a lack of sufficient support for um for these students and a sort of like i mean we've already seen this the fact that the algorithm was ever in place in the way it was um is evidence of the fact that um these institutions or institutions like ofqual and the government were not foreseeing what should have been really obvious um it should have been really obvious that if you're um if part of what you're basing your algorithm on is class size um then that is going to advantage private schools mm -hmm. um it should have been really obvious that if you're using if you're prioritizing overall prior attainment of a school that that is most likely going to disadvantage um schools that are already um already disadvantaged um really? these things should have been obvious and either they were spotted and it was so they didn't matter or they weren't spotted either one is not a good outcome mm -hmm. um and what this has shown is that education remains really important to the general public overall i mean it's like it's something like 75 percent of people think this has been mishandled like yeah. the sheer scale of public outrage shows that f education and particularly fairness in education a sense of a sense of fairness is still really important to so many people but I'm just skeptical that young people are going to be prioritized in the sort of like battles to come as it were of like um fighting to protect jobs in a recession um fighting to protect education that sort of thing um so do do you think there are maybe like do are there things that you think need to change sort of like at a policy level when it comes to how um uh disadvantaged students are sort of like looked after um and how schools are treated like yeah what, what are your what are your thoughts on that yeah so um i completely agree that the uh that the situation has been uh incredibly badly handled and that public confidence mm. in in uh the education secretary and in the government when it comes to uh, building fair systems for all young people, but particularly those from disadvantaged mm. backgrounds, has um, has been massively affected. Mm. Um, absolutely, I think it's uh, it's shown in in a really sharp light the injustices that exist in in the education system. And I think it's important mm. to remember that you know this year was very different, and because the students never had the opportunity to sit the exams, and the fact that those grades were set on the basis of, of what felt to, to, to a lot of us like a, a very random algorithm that didn't take into mm. consideration the um, ability, the efforts or the potential of the individual young person. Mm. Um, mm. So we saw these, these, these big discrepancies and we saw that disadvantaged young people were disproportionately affected. Mm. But actually every year that's the case. Every year we mm. see a massive gap in achievement between our most and our least advantaged. Um, yeah. and, and this year, in some ways was no different. In fact, the algorithm was designed to uh, maintain the, the curve of, of previous years. So I think moving forward, this has um, this has shown us all that it is uh, more important than ever to keep um, uh, closing the disadvantage gap absolutely at the heart of education policy. Um, and that mm. means, you know, continuing um, focusing and supporting organizations to get great teachers and leaders into schools and better support for, for families, catch-up provision, interventions for disadvantaged students, 
um, better support for schools in delivering careers advice. All of um, those areas and, and many more have absolutely got to stay at the forefront of education policy. And I think mm. um, if anything uh, good comes out of this, I think it, it has to be that, you know, the injustice that, you know, everybody's seen now, um, a, a mm. clear example of where our system uh, is weighted um, in favour of those uh, children that come from more privileged families and and everybody as you say everybody's outraged about it you know purely anecdotally I've had so many conversations with um, friends and acquaintances that, that to be honest have, have shown very little interest in the past about or very little uh, passion in mm. uh, in fighting for educational equality and and you know suddenly people are writing to their institutions imploring them to reinstate places for disadvantaged students and, and people are mm, up in arms mm. about it and i think we now need to channel that and make sure that we keep the pressure on um to mm. make sure that there is a, a firm focus on continuing to close the gap moving forwards mm. Mm. yeah absolutely and it's interesting the what you just said anecdotally there because yeah i i think it's just like as you say it's so clear um an unfairness it's like oh, there's literally nothing you could have done, right? Like, there is nothing you could have done. Here are your grades. This is what you're worth. Um, we're not going to publish an appeal system in time, even yeah. though we've had six months to do it. Um, yeah. And you've just got to live with that. Like, I mean, that just been, must have just been horrible yeah. to to be in that position. I I, I can't even fathom it. Um, just out, out, of, out of curiosity... Um, we know how important school is um, for uh, disadvantaged students and, um, you know, closing the attainment gap and making sure that um, they are in a space to um, fulfill their full potential, right? Um, we were just talking about this in the previous interview as well, and obviously it's been an ongoing debate about um, the extent to which school should have been open. Um mm -hmm. Do you, do, you, do you think that schools should have opened earlier or like do you think there should have been um, a bigger emphasis on online learning with like um, sort of the government institutions taking a lead on that or was it you know sh should should the sort of like COVID safety kind of thing have have come first before um, thinking of um, before thinking of education in that sense I don't know what what's your position on that or yeah or if you don't have one that's fine um <laughs> i suppose it, it's a personal position not a a company position a future yeah, yeah, position. yeah yeah i think that um i i absolutely am in favor of getting getting young people back to school as an absolute priority um i mm. think again particularly for disadvantaged young people who won't have the support um or the resources at home to continue their learning at, at the same rate um mm. as their more advantaged peers it's incredibly important the longer uh, the longer schools remain closed the, the the wider that gap is going to grow um so i think now you know it, it's absolutely right that, that the focus is on getting young people back to school in september and as close to a, a normal education year as possible mm. yeah yeah absolutely um and just one final question just thought of the top of my head um we've one of the interesting things about the pandemic is that um, I can't remember the specific numbers now, but it really increased the number of people who then wanted to go and become nurses mm -hmm. and doctors and that sort of thing. Um, like applications like spiked massively. Um, do you think there's going to be an equivalent for people wanting to become teachers? Because, of course, there's been yeah. over several years a massive um, sort of exodus of teachers who uh in in uk schools who think well uh <laughs> you know the conditions are awful there's so much work um yeah. pay has been kept really low um this is so incredibly stressful why on earth should i keep doing this um and you know in some cases fair, like fair enough um but do you think do, do you think something like this is gonna inspire more people to want to become teachers or do you think it probably won't yeah no i think it will and i think there's evidence mm. um already that we're seeing signs of that i mean the teaching oh, really? profession um historically does does well out of recessions um <laughs> and um 
I think we're seeing we're definitely seeing more people staying in teaching from this year to next year. Mm. Now that could be a symptom of a a much more um, uncertain and fragmented job market. So it, it's mm. um, a better option for teachers to stay in in secure employment, of course. But, yeah, yeah. Um, Teach First, for example, who are um, a leading education charity placing teachers mm. in schools serving um, low-income communities have um, seen an increase um, in in teachers um, applying for mm. the programme and, and they, they had to turn away teachers and they weren't able to place Gosh. all of their teachers, which was um, problematic for so many different reasons. But I mean, that is a sign that the profession is is holding on to teachers and I think we will definitely see an increase in, in people wanting to go into that profession. Um, so I'm uh, in general pretty um, uh, <laughs> pretty unsympathetic to people asking us to look for silver linings um, at, at the moment because I think it, it's <laughs> yeah. obviously just been so awful for so many people but but I think that that will be um, something that that comes out of this that will be positive for for education which is that i think we will see an increase in people wanting to enter the profession cool um we've been going for 27 minutes so i think that'd be a good good time yeah to wrap up on great awesome thank you so much for coming on no worries thank you i hope it was um i don't know if we're still on the podcast or not but i uh (laughs) i uh I hope that it was insightful in some ways. And thus, another episode comes to a close. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to Andrew and Fabia for coming on and chatting and sharing their perspectives. Um, if you enjoyed listening to it, as usual, let us know. We'd love to hear what you think, etc., etc. Um, but otherwise, thanks again. And you will hear us again next week. Bye-bye.